Hello, and welcome to Asbury Methodist Church's podcast. My name is Forrest Divini. I'm the lead pastor here at Asbury. I hope this podcast will enrich your walk with Christ. hope it will increase your knowledge of the Bible. And I hope it will be a little bit entertaining as well. We are, we are in the book of Numbers. And uh, if you're following along with our reading plan... We are now into, um, I won't call it the second half, because it's not actually a full half of the book, but we're sort of into the second section of Numbers. So the first ten chapters of Numbers are all about the preparations for the journey into the Promised Land, and we're now into um, the journey itself. Now I'm going to skip over chapter 11, because chapter 11 will feature heavily in my sermon on Sunday, and I'm not going to give any spoilers. Um, So we're going to skip into the other chapters. Well, actually, I, no, we'll do chapter 12. No, 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 I'm sorry. You're getting into my thought process here. I'm going to skip chapter 12. We're going to go into chapter 13. This is, of course, this is the a famous story in Numbers, right? This is when the spies are sent ahead into the promised land to spy out the land. There's, there's one representative from each tribe. They're sent ahead. Their job is to go see what the promised land looks like. And then report back. And they come back and they are terrified. They come back and their report is, these people are huge. Like the people are giant. Their cities have these massive walls around them. We can't possibly defeat these people. Now, how accurate is this report? Well, let's talk about that. We in the modern world don't always think about the way that the fertility of a particular region, you know, the ability to grow crops and raise livestock, etc., plays into the physicality of the people who live there. Because, of course, we live in a world where we, we aren't limited to eating the food that grows right around us, right? We import food from all over the world. Um, You know, we get fruit not just from our local area, but from all over our own country and from all over the planet. A lot of the meat you eat in the stores comes from all over the planet. So we don't necessarily have the same thing. But in the ancient world, if you 
lived in a nation that had really fertile soil, lots of arable land, lots of good farming. Um, the, the people in your area would tend to be bigger and stronger than people who were not so fortunate. The promised land, Canaan, what we would now call Israel, has a lot of fertile land. Lots of very nutrient-rich soil. Still does today, by the way. Um, one of the things that, that we learned when we were there back in January as we were passing through Jericho is that Jericho still today produces some of the finest fruit you can buy anywhere in the world. It has this incredibly fertile soil that's really rich in minerals, and so it grows this... Uh, and I mean, I, I tasted the fruit that's grown there. It is it is unbelievably delicious. It, it's better than anything I've ever had in my life. Um, so Israel still today is extremely fertile. Back then, this was a big deal because it was surrounded by areas where not so much, not so fertile. You had Israel, Canaan, lots of fertile soil, fresh water, good place to farm. You had Egypt, which of course has the Nile River Delta, so lots of fertile soil, fresh water, good place to farm. You had Mesopotamia, with the, which Mesopotamia literally refers actually only to the land between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. Lots of fertile soil, lots of fresh water, easy to farm. You get the picture. These are where civilizations spring up. So the Canaanites live in this area that has access to lots of fresh water, fertile soil. They can grow lots of crops, right? That's attested to in the story. They come back with these massive clusters of grapes that are so big they need a pole between two men to carry them. Um, you know, they have lots of livestock, they're, and they're big. And the Israelites, meanwhile, have been nomads. And before they were nomads, they were slaves, who, although they were fed, were probably not, you know, getting the best food or the or the most nutritious food. And now that, of course, they're wandering in the wilderness, they don't have access to a whole lot of fresh food. There's a really good chance that actually, yeah, the Canaanites did look gigantic to these people. They were well-fed, living in stable areas. Um, they probably were physically larger, or at least looked that way to a typical Israelite. There's something to that. And the spies, all except Caleb and Joshua, are utterly terrified by this. And they come back and they tell the people, there's no way, we can't possibly go in and fight these people. <laughs> and... Um, it's, it's, it's astonishing, right? It's astonishing that these people who have seen God doing amazing things, who have seen the pillar of cloud and fire leading them through the wilderness, who have seen the sea parted, who have seen God miraculously providing food and water for them in the wilderness. These people 
are struggling to trust that God can deliver them to the promised land and, and give them possession of the land. I'm constantly amazed by this, by the way. Um, and I think it's a really powerful lesson for us, which is that, you know, it's, we, we tend, when we talk about faith in God and trust in God, very often we think to ourselves one of two things. We think, boy, if only I had some sort of proof. Some sort of proof that God is who he says he is, that, God's gonna, that God can and will do the things he said he's going to do. That would just be so helpful. It would make my life so much easier. I would love it if I had that kind of proof. We think that sometimes. Other times we think, you know what? Faith has to be blind. Faith has to be blind because God doesn't give us anything to, to prove our faith. And we think that faith that isn't blind isn't real faith. Those are both just nonsensical ideas. Here's the reality. God gives us plenty of proof. But it doesn't seem to change anything. And that's what's truly amazing here. Proof does not strengthen our faith. That is the human condition. That is what it means to be a people who have fallen from grace. That even, even clear proof does not strengthen our faith. There is nothing, absolutely nothing, that God can do that will give us an unshakable faith. And that's all on us. We ought to be taking this as quite the warning. That you know, there, there's nothing God can do that will give us that kind of faith. And therefore, even though we can see the proof of, that God is doing what God always said he would do all around us, we can't base our faith on that. Literally, it's impossible because it won't work. So instead of wishing we had that kind of proof, we ought to focus instead on simply trusting in God in all circumstances, even when it it doesn't seem to make any sense to do so. And handing things over to God. So the people, the people rebel. They complain. They say, this is a quote from Numbers 14, verse 2. They say, would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back Skipping ahead to verse 11. 
And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me? And in spite of all the signs that I have done among them, I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you, Moses, a nation greater and mightier than they. But Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear of it. For you brought up this people in your might from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now if you kill this people, then the nations who have heard your fame will say, It is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give to them that he has killed them in the wilderness. And now please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So Moses convinces God not to kill the people. A lot of people don't like this verse. They don't like the idea that Moses changed God's mind. Um, get over it. Moses changed God's mind. This is how prayer works. Prayer does indeed change God's mind, and there is biblical evidence for it in, in many places. Prayer changes God's mind. Now, how does that work, you say, if God knows everything and God knows what's going to happen in the future? Well, the short answer is, we don't know. We don't understand how that works. The long answer is, um, it's not actually clear from Scripture. It's not clear from Scripture that God has complete, detailed foreknowledge of what's going to happen or what we're going to do. It's not clear how it would work if he did. It's not clear what it would be like to exist, exist as God outside of time as you and I experience it. And so this is probably one of the questions that we don't really need to spend a ton of time thinking about an answer to. We just need to understand, seems pretty clear, Moses changed God's mind. God was going to wipe him out and start over with Moses, and Moses says, nope, I don't want that, and neither do you. Let's just deal with the people. And in any case, the, I think what is very much the point of this is prayer works. Prayer changes things. We can communicate to God and change what's going to happen. It doesn't change God's plans in the long run, but it can change the outcome of specific events. So, now God condemns them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until all of the, the people over the age of 20 have died. He essentially says, okay, you want to die in the wilderness? You're going to die in the wilderness. And really kind of fascinating that their punishment is to get exactly what they wanted. Um, I, I, I think we probably need to dwell on that some. This idea that he gave them exactly what they wanted. Um, God very often will give us what we want uh, if we ask him enough for it. But what we want might not always be a good thing. Or I should say, what we think we want 
might not always be such a good thing. They wanted to die in the wilderness. God says, okay, you're going to die in the wilderness. Your children will see the promised land, but you won't. And then, my favorite part, uh, after that, the people of Israel said, no, you know what, we're going to go take the promised land on our own. And they go and they try to invade the promised land and it just goes horribly for them. They're, they're utterly defeated in battle. Um, and doesn't this just sum up the, the human condition perfectly, right? First, they're afraid to go to the promised land. They beg God to let them turn back and go to Egypt. And when God says, you know what? You can stay in the wilderness for now. And when you're all dead, your children can go in. But you, since you're too afraid to go in the promised land, okay, fine, come into the wilderness. You're not going to go see it. And, and then, <laughs> then when they're told they can't do it, they have to go try, right? This is just like when I tell my kids she can't do something, right? All of a sudden, that's all she wants to do is the thing I've just told her she's not allowed to do. Um, she gets that from me. She comes by and honest. I'm the same way, right? You tell me I can't do something, buckle up because I'm going to do it one way or another, right? This is such a, I, I mean, what a classic illustration of, of humanity and, and the way that we go about doing things. Um, and that's one of the, the best parts about these, these stories from the Old Testament, in my opinion, is the way they illustrate the human condition so profoundly. We learn from these stories that humans have not changed fundamentally, ever. We, are, we do the same things. We make the same mistakes. We are the same kinds of people. Now, things around us change. The cultures we live in change. Um... The, the some of our values may change, but fundamentally human nature has remained the same throughout history. This is one of the things, the, the pieces of wisdom that we as Christians have to offer the world that the world really needs to hear. Because the world doesn't believe this. The world thinks human nature has changed over the years. Despite all evidence to the contrary, the world genuinely believes human nature is different now than it used to be. And so the things, horrible things that people did in the past aren't going to happen again. People refuse to learn the lessons of history because they think human nature has changed. My favorite example of this, of course, is World War I and World War II, right? They called World War I the war to end all wars. The level of bloodshed and violence and destruction was so unimaginable, so horrific that at the end of it, everybody just assumed, man, no one will ever do this again. This is as bad as it gets. But literally, in it, it, the next world war broke out as soon as a new generation of soldiers was of age to replace the ones lost in the first world war. I mean, that's all the time it took. As soon as there was a new generation of fighting men ready to go, World War II began. And I know that it that is an oversimplification of all the complex geopolitical realities, but it is still a reality. We thought we had escalated the violence and the brutality to such a degree that the human race would never again stomach a war. But literally, as soon as we were able to fight one again, we fought one. And the only reason a war has not broken out on that scale since then is because we now have weapons that... 
uh, if they were used, would annihilate the entire human race. And even then, we've been finding ways to kill each other. Human nature does not change, has not changed. It's pretty clear from scripture that that's true. We can very easily see echoes of ourselves in the ancient people of Israel. This is why the Bible is still relevant. Every word of it. Because we are not fundamentally different from the people who were alive 3,000, 4,000 years ago. We are fundamentally the same. We have not changed. There are no new social issues, by the way. We keep recycling the same ones. Even issues of marriage and sexuality are the same things that people have been doing for thousands and thousands of years. None of this is new. None of it is new. It's all been around for as long as there has been humanity. That's a whole separate other podcast. As you read numbers, look for yourself in there. Where are the places that you are rebelling against God? Where are the places where you are doing something just because God told you not to? Where are the places where you have rejected faith in God even though you've seen the evidence he's working in your life? That's the thought I will leave you with this week. We will be back next week with another podcast on Scripture. Until then, God bless.